Today we're going to turn to Romans chapter 5. Once again, we're completing this series that we've done, uh, looking at uh, reasons for hope, um, to be optimistic about the future, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Today we're focusing on verses 6 through 11. And uh, so let's give attention once again to God's holy word. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast or rejoice or optimistic, have confidence in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. O Lord, our great and awesome God, we thank you that you have spoken to us your mind and heart to reveal to us the way back to you, the way of reconciliation. Encourage our hearts with it. Give us hope for the future because of it. With this we pray that you would grant us the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to see it. I pray, O oh Father, that, that all those things that we base hope in and uh, that we hope for, that we'd be able to hold them more loosely, that we might be able to hold more tightly to the sure ground of hope that we have because of the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I met this week with a young man who was telling me some of his story. And he grew up, you know, attending school, involved in sports. He was involved with uh, karate for seven years. And uh, so I wasn't going to challenge him on anything he said. Um, But uh, he did really well in that. And then one thing happened just out of the blue. All of a sudden, he fell to the ground, started vomiting, and uh, then eventually passed out. His his dad took him, uh, flew through the city to the hospital brought him there, and uh, he was in a coma for a day and a half. They did all sorts of tests on him, trying to figure out what had happened to him, and they never discovered anything. They had no idea why this had occurred. And so that experience, though, made this young man start to begin to ask some questions about the future because he realized that he was not going to live on forever. He realized that, that death was a part of life. And he started thinking about the future in a way that he had never thought before. And I think for all of us, at some point in our lives, we're going to have those times when when these circumstances or even just our thoughts break through our ordinary life. And we start to think, what is the hope for the future in this life and then beyond this life, even in the face of death? And, you know, there's a lot of messages that come to us that tell us, that there is really no hope, that there's just nothing after death, that there is in this life, we're probably headed towards disaster, where um, there 
is little hope for change. People just stay the same as they always were. That societies can't be better. That justice can't be done on earth. And um, the Bible comes to us with a whole different perspective. It comes to us and says there is hope. There's hope for change in this world. But even more, there's hope for the life to come. And it gives us many reasons to believe that there is a firm expectation of good things. And these include the promises that God makes. That He who began a good work in you will not fail to carry it on to completion, for example. We have hope because God has given us a justifying sentence. Namely, He has said, you are righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done and which you have received by faith. And that gives us an expectation that we can have peace and confidence for the future. And then also, ironically, even our sufferings end up being even a ground of hope because we see that through them, God shows himself to be faithful to us and shows us, gives us confidence of what he's going to do in the future. But also he changes us and shows us that we're going to be transformed into something great and glorious and in fact are being transformed right now, that he's going to make us into something glorious and marvelous. All these are grounds of hope, but the greatest ground of hope we see in the passage we we read in the last section of it, which is the death of Christ. Now, it might be surprising that the death of someone is the basis for hope. Generally, a death is a basis for not having hope. But in this case, the death is the basis for hope. And I want to explain why that is. And I want to show you, first of all, I want to start by just talking a little bit about understanding the death of Christ. What is its meaning and significance? Secondly, that it assures us, the death of Christ assures us of God's love. And then it assures us of a glorious future. And then it also gives us a foundation for joy. So those are the four things we'll talk about from based on this passage. Seeing how we can have hope in the death of Christ. So first of all, we need to understand the death of Christ. All over the world, wherever you go, you will find a symbol. Uh, it, is, it is a cross. It looks like a T, the letter T. But wherever you go, you can find this. And it is on the top of Christian churches. It's in homes. It's on necklaces and so on. And it, it is, it, there's a reason for that. It's because it is kind of the symbol of our faith. It's the cross. And it tells us something about how God views our problem, and also how he views our solution. So he views our problem as being one, not of having the wrong type of government or having the wrong type of people in power, the wrong experiences in our family, um, the wrong resources, the wrong job. Though all these things can be problems that we need to work on. The major problem is a separation between God and us due to the fact that we have turned away from him. And that's a problem because we don't now want to turn back to him and because also he is opposed to us because of our turning away from him. His wrath is coming against us. This is not a popular message, oftentimes in our society, but it is one that is true to the Bible. It is true to God. It is true to reality. And it is actually true to what people are really seeking because you don't, Everywhere you go in society, people are are wanting justice done for wrongs that are done. I mean, just listen to what people talk about. They love talking about the wrongs that other people have done. And you will hear that. Just sit around a coffee shop, restaurant, wherever the case may be. They're talking about the wrongs that have done by the people that have been in their lives, the people at their work, the people um, in, in the nation, the other political party, whatever it may be. We have a great desire to see wrongs righted. 
And that impulse is right. It is the impulse of desiring that sin would be dealt with, that that which is deliberately brought into the world to bring in disorder and to bring in that which is contrary to the peace of God is something that should be dealt with. The problem is, is over and over again, we want God to deal with sin very selectively. Kind of out there, and someone else, and something else, and the other political party, and the family members, and so on. Now, God's going to deal with all that, but what we miss is that God is opposed to that which opposes Him, not just out there, but also in here. And so, God comes and clarifies for us that it's not just the results of sin or the so-called bad sins that are kind of out there in our society, but also the sin that is within us. And that that's a problem, and it's not just a small problem. The hatred we show towards God on a daily basis or towards one another, the way we react to each other, the, the, the angry resp- responses, the unwillingness to accept what God brings us, the lack of gratitude, are all things that in essence are, are just as destructive as the things that we don't like. And so that's got to be dealt with. And that's what the death of Christ is, is that these things have to be righted. And what Jesus comes and does is that he deals with that sin. He takes it upon himself, suffers it in our place so that we can be forgiven and so that a proper payment to the justice of God can be made so there's a restoration that can occur. That is why this in Romans 5 verse 9 He says, we are justified by his blood. We're declared righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has suffered. In Romans 5.10, it says that we are enemies of God that need to be reconciled through his death. We see that Christ's death is an atoning death, a payment. In Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by his grace, by his gift, through the redemption or payment of, that is in Christ Jesus on the cross. And so it is a satisfaction to God's justice. It's, a, it's a, a paying things back for the disorder that has been brought into the universe because of what we have done and are doing and, and still are. And so the cross is something we need every day. Looked at from another angle, we can see that God made this world. He loves it. He loves not just people, he loves the animals. He loves the, the grass and the trees and the sky and the stars and all these things. And our natural, the natural thing that would have been is that God would have just loved us, delighted on us, delighted in us and experienced blessing with him to all eternity. He wanted to be with us. But our turning away from him brought a separation between us and it brought his wrath upon us. And that so we were criminals in the universe, so to speak. What, what God does, though, is he comes to make a payment for that sin so that, there, so that that separation can be removed. And that which would hinder us from coming back to God can be removed. You know, um, I'm reading the book of Leviticus in, the, in my morning Bible reading. And uh, it's an interesting book. There's all kinds of stuff. You're like, huh? Um, but... You know, what it teaches us, though, if you always say, you know, don't get lost in the details, try to see the big picture, is like everything's oriented towards the sacrifice of the temple. And like no matter what you do in daily life, it's always like this is going to affect the sacrifice. And that's got to be protected. That's got to be preserved. There's got to be cleanliness in that. And that's what's got to be that's what's got to be brought here so that 
that sacrifice can be made so that people can be restored to God and have access to God. And that's what the cross is. It's about that sacrifice that is offered in our place as a satisfaction to God's justice and his violated rights as the king of the universe so that now that we can be brought back to him. The amazing thing, though, is that um, God, when he sacrificed his son, when Christ died, he didn't die for the best people. He died for the ungodly, the wicked, the unrighteous. That's what it tells us in verse 6. You see, just the right time, when we were still powerless, we couldn't come back to God, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for people who were wicked, who had opposed him, who in many ways didn't even want the sacrifice he had to give. Now, what the Apostle Paul says in verse 7 is, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And the stories of people dying for good people, in the sense of, you know, in, in a human sense or of our society, you might say a civil righteousness, um, are, are some of the most amazing stories that we can tell. When someone gives the, be- the greatest gift they can give of their lives. That's why I think is the, the movie, whenever I think of this, I always think of the movie Saving Private Ryan. Where um, basically the four, this woman has four sons. And it's a fictional story, but there were events like this that occurred. Where there were four, stun- four sons and three of them died uh, around the same time. The fourth one is stuck deep in German-controlled territory in France. And so seven men are gathered together who are going to go look for this guy and bring him back. Well, it turns out they find him in the midst of a city that's being attacked by the German army. And um, they, they all basically make their stand to defend him. And every single one of them dies, except James Ryan, who is able to live. They all die in the process of saving him so that his mother would not lose all of her sons. So it's a fictional story, but it's powerful and illustrates what can happen in war. And there are many stories like that. For example, a man named Nicholas Palermo was trapped with several others in a trench under three German machine guns in World War I. And what he decided to do was to sacrifice himself for the others. So he got out, he took out the first machine gun, got shot by the second machine gun, but took that one out But by the time he got to the third, his body was so riddled with bullets that he died. And then, but it gave the others enough time that they were able to get out and take out that third machine gun. And so he didn't leave the fields of World War I, but he gave these people the opportunity to be saved. And so he was rewarded uh, posthumously with the Silver Star, um, one of the highest honors that can be received in the military. And... um, you can imagine that those, those men who continue to live because of what Nicholas Palermo did never forgot that. And that's what's also depicted at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, which is based on real scenes that were seen by the author of that book when he falls down in tears at the graveside of one of those men who gave his life for him. And he contemplated that his life was gained by the sacrifice of Captain John Miller. And when we understand the cross, that's the sort of thought that we'll have. Falling to our knees before the one who sacrificed himself for us so that he might live. 
We live because he sacrificed himself for us. But yet the sacrifice is so much greater even than that. Even though these stories are powerful and wonderful and even fictional stories can evoke those emotions because you know that it, it, it is part of what happens in these, in these terrible events. But in the case of Christ, it's him sacrificing himself for, for the men on the other side of the trench. It's him going to, to sacrifice himself for those who are trying to kill him. And that is, that is what Jesus has done. That's what it's saying. He, he knew that we would oppose him, but he gave his life anyways. And that should ever be in our heart. Now, the person who wrote this passage we wrote is God himself, but he spoke through a man named Paul. And Paul wrote this as a letter to the church in Rome. And what um, the Apostle Paul understood is he understood what he was talking about here. Because when, after Jesus died and rose again, communities started forming where, um, the, where Jesus was given allegiance, and we call them churches today, like our church, and he sought to destroy these. And he actually saw, oversaw someone killing one of the leaders of that church, stoning him to death. And then he left to go to Damascus, where some of these communities were starting, and he says, I'm going to put those people in prison. But on the way, he said, I saw Jesus. He confronted me. And he said, I'm alive, and you're going to now serve me. He who was his enemy became his friend. And you know that that, the thought of what he had done animated Paul his whole life. And so he wrote to his young apprentice, Timothy, and said to him, he said, this is a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That is the love of God displayed to us. If he died for us when we were his enemies and loved us even when we were his enemies, what, is it, what now is going to separate us from that love? This gives us the assurance of his love. That's why he's going to say in just a few short, and just a little way into this book, what can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ? Would it be our sin, our rebellion against him? No. It already didn't separate us from him. And he died for us when we were in that condition. Then what can separate us from that love? Can peril or sword or famine, anything else? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But there's another conclusion that we need to draw from this, which he draws in this place, is that, is that not just that we know that God loved us and still loves us, but it also is something that gives us hope for the future. Now, rightly because of our sins, what should have been staring us in the face is the wrath of God. But the Apostle Paul says, and draws a conclusion from this, that therefore, because of what Jesus has done, that's not our future. You see, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? So the, the, the main thing that could come against us is God's wrath, and that's been dealt with. If we've been justified by his blood, then we have no more expectation of God's wrath. Instead, instead of wrath and death, we have the opposite. We have life and salvation. Verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If God wanted to give to us while we were his enemies, how much more does he want to give us now that we are no longer his enemies? 
How much more shall we be saved through his life? Because Jesus didn't just die, but his life has meaning because he rose from the dead. And that says that our sins are paid for and that his life that he now lives, he lives for us. Because his life now is a pledge. You are saved by his life because his life is a pledge and security for the life of all his people. As John 14, 19 says, because I live, you shall live also. His life is the foundation of our life because his life that he lives is now lived for us. He's able to save us to the uttermost, Hebrews says, because he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. He's pleading on our behalf before the Father that we'll be given all the things that he won for us. And we can see that also his life will save us because it's a life of power. At his resurrection, he said in Matthew 28, 18, all power in heaven and earth was committed into his hands. He's head over all things for the benefit of his church, Ephesians 1 says. He's got everything he needs to give us everything we need. And that's why the Apostle Paul is going to conclude in Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As Mike said, if God, God is obviously not just for us, but fiercely for us, as he likes to, the term he likes to use. It's accurate. And he goes on to say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also along with him graciously give us all things? So, in other words, if God didn't withhold his own son, which was the greatest gift he could give, then why would he fail to give us anything else that we really need? Now, when we hear the all things, we might think, well, you know, I need a car. And so God said, he'll give me all things, so he'll give me a car. Or I need a nicer car, and so God will give me a nicer car. And then, or, you know, I need a wife, or I need three children, or whatever. I need a bigger house. I need to get out of this apartment. That's not what all things means. All things means that, that God is going to give us all things that are necessary for our blessedness to transform us into the glory of God. And that may be, sometimes that's consistent with getting a nicer car. Sometimes that's inconsistent with getting a nicer car. Sometimes that's consistent with, with driving uh, without getting in an accident. Sometimes it's consistent with getting into an accident. Sometimes it's consistent with just feeling good. Sometimes it's suffering through sickness. Those things are not the essential thing. The essential thing is God is transforming us into an eternal weight of glory. He'll give us everything that's necessary to become what we need to be to experience blessedness forever and to experience the joy and peace he has for us. That's what God is saying. And so that's why we can have hope for the future, even in the midst of sufferings, that if, if things don't work out how we like, that we say, God is still giving us all things. If my health fails, does that mean that God is not giving me all things? No, he still is. If my house burns down, does that mean God is not giving us all things? No, he's still giving us all things. If my spouse dies, does that mean God is not giving us all things? No, he's still giving us all things. If I lose my job, does that mean that he's not giving us all things? No, he's still giving us all things. He's giving us everything we need for blessedness and hope for the future. How do we know that? Because he did not fail to give his own son. And if he did not give up his own son, how will he fail to give us all other things that are truly needful as well? That's the message of hope that we have. That's why the cross is the best foundation for our hope. We can look at it and say, 
We can look to the future and say, if God has already given me the most important thing, why won't he give me the bright future as well? And that's what can then build within us a foundation for joy. That's what this, the last verse says. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, again, it's the same word, this word boast. We've talked about it. He uses it several times in this passage. We boast in even our sufferings. The idea of boasting, is the word that he uses for boast can mean like it's what we rejoice in. It's what we glory in. It's what makes us proud. It's what makes us optimistic. It's what gives us confidence for the future. And so we say that this is about giving us joy and confidence for the future. The Apostle Paul is going to close his letter with this benediction that where he says that may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. That that's the bottom line. That's, that's where this should lead us. And he's going to tell them that, you know, he's saying in the old times, you know, God did a lot of things externally to show you that you're separate from other people. Like, for example, in, in Leviticus chapter 11, he gives a long list of foods that you should and should not eat which were designed to show them their separation from the nations, the unclean animals representing the Gentiles, the clean animals representing the Jews. But what even then this meant was to point to something greater. And how much more now that Jesus has, has turned that and said that distinction is long, no longer necessary. He says in Romans fourteen seventeen that the kingdom is not about eating and drinking, but about joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So you say, you know, it's so easy to focus on the external. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't run with boys that do. You know, that's holiness. No. But you want to be separate from the world, have a joy and peace that's founded upon the promises of God. That's the big separation that should occur. But how do we get that joy? Well, we view the the future in light of the cross and the resurrection instead of in the light of our sin or our suffering or the things that we don't want or the things that we're not getting or the things we'd like to have and don't have in the moment. This gives us a sense that the God who has done so much for in the past will do something good, indeed great, for us in the future. So much so, the Apostle Paul says, that all things, we know, that all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And the result of a recognition of that is joy. Joy is the uplifting of the soul that is the result of the firm confidence that all things will turn out well. That's the message of the cross. All things are going to turn out well. And because of that, we can have our soul can be lifted up in joy. Even if we have sorrow, which sometimes we do in this world, We don't sorrow as those who have no hope. And we can say with Apostle Paul that we're sorrowing yet rejoicing. But notice that the foundation for this joy is not in us. It's not because we're so great and we know we'll make it through. But he says we rejoice in God. We boast in God. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've received the reconciliation. So what makes us proud? What makes us confident? What makes us like really happy about the future is like we've got God and he's doing something great and awesome in us that he's carrying out. It's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon him. This is our boast. It gives us confidence for the future. It gives us optimism. It gives us hope. It gives us our happiness because we know that this will occur. And indeed, 
that realization is more important than almost anything else that we can experience in this life. There's going to be all sorts of uncertainties in this world. You know, some of you may be coming close to graduating. You don't know what that's going to, what that's going to do. Some of you may feel like, you know, in your family right now, there's some uncertainties. You don't know where you stand with people. You don't know, um, you don't know how you're going to provide for the next month. You don't know where, think, where the resources are going to come from. You may have some issue in your work that needs to be resolved. You may have some problem that you've come upon. You don't know where your, your health is headed. But that's part of life. There's going to be uncertainties. What God calls us to is the certainty above the all uncertainties. Is to say that in Him, that whatever event it is, and however you, whether you figure it out or not, is there is a certainty that it's all going to turn out well. That it's all, that the future is bright. That the future has hope. That the future is the glory of God, seeing it and revealing it in us. And that doesn't change, even if we can't figure out what job we're going to do, what we're going to do the next week, how our relationships are going to turn out, or whatever else it may be. And indeed, to see that point, to get the fact that we have a certainty in the midst of all the uncertainties of life, is more important than solving any of those particular problems. Now, that doesn't mean we can't pray for them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't work at them. But it means that if we try to rely on that for our joy we're going to have an uncertain joy. But we have a foundation of a certain joy as we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. And so, in all of this, may God grant us the eyes of faith that it will open our hearts to all other gifts that will enable us to see how great and how wide and how deep is His love displayed in the cross. Amen. Thus may be.